Good morning. <laughs> Enjoying you down here tonight. I'm getting your faces. Exciting. It's closer. A little less today. Uh, actually, this is just much more comfortable for my feet. <laughs> so, um, I'm glad you're here this morning. A little bit down. We're missing three and a half families. Uh, Jess is working today. She's the half. Um, so, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are going to finish Leviticus today and um, be ready for numbers next week. We are officially over halfway through the Pentateuch. Um, I'm going to do a little corporate confession right now. How many of you have been doing pretty good? Well, not so perfect, okay? Pretty good with your reading of the Pentateuch. Maybe not renovate us, but at least the reading. Okay, very good. <laughs> um, I know it's a lot to consume. I, I understand that. And the language is a little tough in some places. Um, we're getting ready to go into numbers next week, which is full of censuses. So that's exciting. You get to see how many people are in each tribe. Um, nonetheless, make sure you're taking some time to read as much as you can as we're going through. Uh, as you saw last week, we were able to really only touch on three chapters, sort of. Um, as far as reading, and this week even less, um, there's just so much to cover uh, thematically as we're trying to fly higher in the text. Um, thank you. I was actually getting ready to build a nice big size table for us because I'm going <laughs> to wobble that. Um, thank you. So be trying to, uh, to keep up with us on that. We're actually going to talk a lot about the Renovate Us uh, today from this week. Um, hopefully you got some time to do that over your break. I pray that you had a good 4th of July. Adeline, ooh, and Odded at, uh, at the fireworks. That was fun. Um, we tried to go to the Vandalia ones right when she got off, got home from work. So we left my house at 9.30. They start at 10. And there was nowhere to go. So we parked actually about uh, 20 seconds from your house. Um, and you could see over the trees. And we had some nice John Williams music playing in the car. Uh, and it was it was totally awesome. And we got out of there in about 10 seconds, so that was nice. Um, so with that, let's, uh, let's jump into Leviticus. Um, normally I would read a passage and we would be able to launch into um, what that passage has for us. Uh, but today we are covering a lot of chapters. Um, so let's just do a little bit of um, a regrouping from last week. We talked about how God's people are sinful and so they should offer sacrifices. What are the sacrifices? Uh, what do they mean? Uh, what are they there for? And primarily, why? Why do we have to offer sacrifices? And we discovered that it's basically because we are sinful people. We uncovered some things such as the extent of sin, the depravity of sin, and what it really looks like. And we're not going to spend so much time today defining what that is. We're going to talk a lot about the, um, and the implications of what it means to be a sinful person. Well, last week we talked about how to have right worship before God, and that's to confess sin. If we want to engage with God in worship, we have to be free from our sin. And he provided a way to do that in Leviticus through the sacrifices. And obviously then later now in the New Testament, we have a permanent sacrifice in Jesus Christ. The gospel goes forth, and we're able to enter into right relationship and right uh, worship with God. And so today... We're going to be talking about how to be spiritually acceptable to God through an obedient walk. Now, I, in order to keep myself from having to caveat all the way through my message, I'm going to do a big one here at the beginning, all right? So disclaimer, 
asterisks. Here we go. In Leviticus, you had to have an obedient walk in order to have spiritual acceptance before God. I'm not going to dance around that. There are things you had to do in order to, quote-unquote, earn righteousness. Caveat. Those actions did not give you righteousness. We find later in Hebrews that Abraham had faith, and that faith was counted as righteousness for, uh, between him and God. Okay, So, yes, you had to do the actions in order to have right relationship and be spiritually acceptable to God. Now, we're going to talk more about what acceptable means today. That's a big part of what we'll be talking about. But they had to obey the law in order to be righteous, but they did not grant them righteousness. That simply can only come from Christ, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Faith is what allows us to be accepted by God. We'll see that at the end of today when we look at 1 Corinthians. So with that said, as we address Leviticus, we need to understand the context. They did not yet have the work of Christ on the cross. They did not have the ability to look back as we do and claim that power for ourselves. To look back at a past event and say, yes, I believe that happened. Yes, I believe that Jesus paid for my sins. Yes, I believe he rose from the dead. They had to look forward to a coming Messiah that would grant them final freedom from the sacrificial system. That would be the perfect high priest. That would be the perfect sacrifice, the lamb that was slain. Understand, as we look at this language, they had to do these things. This was part of the system that God set up when we're talking about what does it mean to be spiritually acceptable. So with that, let's talk about how to be spiritually acceptable to God through an obedient walk. The first and major point for today is God's people must be distinct. If you want a main idea for the day, it's God's people must be distinct. So everything that we're going to do today is about how do we be distinct. If we want to be spiritually acceptable to God in an obedient walk, we must be a distinct people. And there's three different ways that we can do that. The kind of where we're going today, just to give you a little bit of a road map, is first is going to be cleanness and ritual purity. You don't have to fill in your notes right now. We'll get there. Cleanness and ritual purity is going to be our first stop, which is going to lead us into holiness. Holiness is one way that we can be a distinct people. And finally, obedience. Obedience is going to kind of wrap all of this up into how do we have that acceptable walk part? Obedience. Obedience is what allows us to have these actions that allow us to be distinct people. And so God's people must be distinct. I believe this is why the priests from last week that we read about, Nadab and Abihu, or Abihu, are not the only ones in Leviticus to receive God's swift judgment. If you remember, these two sons of Aaron went and offered unauthorized fire before God, something that God did not command them to do in the way that they did it, and they were consumed by the fire. It was a swift judgment from God. But he, they're not the only ones in Leviticus that experience a swift judgment like that. If you remember, as, as we've gone through Leviticus, if you read it, only about three chapters are what we would call narrative. Everything else is law. It's just written down. Now, we're used to, in Genesis and in Exodus, a narrative, right? There's stories unfolding. And in our particular context, we would call them historical narrative, right? So we see them as a historical account, a narrative of what happened. 
when you get to Leviticus, you don't have that, but there are a couple different instances. And so the second one that we see of people that get a swift judgment of God is a member of the tribe of Dan. All right, so therefore he was not a Levite priest, right? Uh, Dan is a tribe, a Levi is a tribe. Levites are the priests. Dan would be a layperson. He gets involved in a fight, and then he blasphemes the name of the Lord with a curse. The Lord tells Moses that the man must be stoned, and they did. They took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 24, verse 10, 11, and 23. So they take this man, and they await the will of the Lord, and they're given the will of the Lord, and then 23, verse 23, they follow through with what the will of the Lord is. You cannot blaspheme the name of God. And there's a swift judgment that comes with that. Sin, as we remember last week, deserves death. We're all sinners and we all deserve death. If we can't start from that premise, then we have no business working through how do we have an appropriate walk with God. So, God's people must be distinct, otherwise they lie about who God is. If this person was allowed to go on doing what he did, he was living a lie about who God is. And God is not okay with that. So, if we're going to be distinct, how can we be distinct? The first thing, cleanness and ritual purity. Cleanness and ritual purity will be our first stop for today. Chapter 10, verse 10 says that you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. We're going to begin by talking about that latter phrase. 50% of the occurrences in the entire Bible of the word unclean are found in Leviticus. If you want to understand Leviticus, if you want to understand uh, the covenantal language here, you have to understand the language of clean, unclean, and holy and common. Easy way to do that. It's not hard. Picture a circle, okay? And that everything that's in that circle of everything, trees, rocks, animals, fabric, people, all can fit into that and potentially be clean. Anything that is not ordained clean by God is outside of the circle and is therefore unclean. Simple enough? Now, inside of the clean circle, we have another smaller one. And inside that is the word holy. Now, nothing unclean can ever be holy unless it first becomes clean, right? So, as we talk about this language of clean, unclean, holy, and common, let's uh, remember that circle, and I'll, I'll be referencing that. So, let's talk about defining our terms. What does unclean mean? Understand that unclean is not synonymous with sin. If you walk through Leviticus and keep seeing these things are unclean, you may be confused into thinking that things that are proper are sinful, and they're not necessarily always sinful. So unclean is not a synonym for sin, okay? Unclean is generally not an irredeemable state. Most things that are unclean can be cleansed and brought back in. Unclean things are not necessarily wrong or even avoidable. Of course, immoral actions that we would see, things that are against God's law, such as adultery, homosexuality, murder, Many other things are certainly unclean. Those things are immoral actions, and those would always be an unclean issue. But so too was someone who had a miscarriage or an infectious disease. You don't choose to have a miscarriage. You don't choose to have an infectious disease, right? These are things that happen to you. It doesn't even fall into the category of uh, unintentional sin that we would talk about last week. You didn't unintentionally become 
there's no intention involved in that, right? There's no motive in those things. But if you had a miscarriage or an infectious disease, you would be declared unclean. A person could be made unclean by a number of activities that the average Israelite was right to engage in, such as preparing a corpse for a funeral is commanded by God. You're supposed to take care of those things. You're not let them, to let them rot above ground. You're to bury them. It's an image-bearing vessel. But that would make you unclean. Sexual intercourse and marriage would make you unclean. Menstruation, childbirth, all these things would make you unclean, but they're not sinful. So you see the distinction, kind of? Okay, let's make it a little bit more clear as we go forward. The next uh, issue we kind of need to talk through is what is a holy thing versus a common thing? So everything in the unclean or clean section would be declared common, right? Except for things that are in the middle, holy things. So clean and unclean would both be considered common. But if you push in further, if you take something that is clean and want to make it holy, you can make it holy by sanctifying it. That's where we get this idea of sanctification. To sanctify is to push something into the holy category. We're, we're setting it apart for holy use. Now the significance of setting something apart for holy use comes in the next category. If you were to take something out of the holy thing, you would profane it. And the idea of setting it apart is because unclean things, anything outside of the circle, could never touch or come into contact with anything that is holy. There are grave consequences anytime anything that is unclean outside of the circle were to touch or come into contact with something that is holy. They would be, if it was a person, they could be cut off from the tribe. So when I say that unclean can be made clean, someone who is cut off is cut off. It's over. There are just some things that should never meet or touch. Well, if you've ever jumped a battery before and done it wrong, you know that some things can't touch other things, right? Or you get another little fireworks show. The color blue and the color yellow should never be together, right? I mean, there's just some things that should not be. Sorry, Adam. So something that is unclean could never touch the holy. It first had to be made clean before it could ever come in contact with the holy. Does that make sense? A lot of lingo in there. It's just their system for setting these things apart. Now, obviously the question is, why was it like this? Why do we have these categories of holy, common, clean, unclean. What's the big deal for that? Well, you could talk for ages about the significance of those specific things, but just two observations on what this language is here for and what we can understand from it is, number one, it shows us that God is indifferent about nothing. There is nothing in this world that God does not care about. If you look at the language in Leviticus, we see almost every possible situation brought up and dealing with disease, and dealing with bodily fluids, and dealing with animals, and eating. We see everything almost addressed, and anything that's not addressed has a principle laid out for it, right? All of life matters to God. God taught the Israelites that life involves making distinctions, and that they should never assume that something is morally neutral. We have to understand that God is teaching the Israelites, and as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, everything that they did, everything that happened to them was an example for us. When God was teaching the Israelites, he was teaching us that everything matters to God. And when we talk about God's sovereignty in Genesis and in Exodus, he's not just in control of the big events. He's not just in control of 
of the major things that happen in this world, he is in control of the number of hairs on your head. And with 7 billion people on the planet, it's a lot of hairs, but he cares about all of them. Why? Because he's God. That's enough for me. That is enough for me. He is God. And it should be for us, as we see later, as he says, do these things because I'm the Lord. Yes, sir. That should be our only, only response. As I said last week, we have no business asking why God said something until we first understand that he said something. He is God. So what would happen to us if we viewed our life by understanding that life involves making distinctions and that we should never assume that something's morally neutral? What would our life look like? Would it look different? Would you be more sensitive to what the Lord really values in your life? There's some classic books that will always be um, somewhat popular. You guys have heard of The Pilgrim's Progress by John Munyon. Heard of Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, these books talk about spiritual warfare. Uh, they've been incredibly popular. They're classics because we see in these books that they show us how everyday matters have eternal importance. If you read Screwtape Letters, it is just a wild ride. As you see... Um, the uh, head demon and, uh, well, his, I'm not going to use their names. Well, screw tape is one of them. But you see the demon boss with the other demon who is supposedly trying to orchestrate things in your life to accomplish certain goals. They don't just talk about the major events. Like, let's, let's spend the next 10 years making sure that we get this person to marry the wrong one. No, it's even just conversations. Right, let's, let's throw a little bit of deceit in here just so that they trust themselves and being able to control the situation a little bit more. Let's throw a little bit of arrogance in here so that they can have some power over this person. It's the little things in our life that add up. Those are, those are what make us who we are. God teaches us here that everything matters. He is indifferent about nothing. And so if that's just in our actions, we can grab a lot from that. But I think another observation that we can make between this holy and common, this clean and unclean, is this. God cares tremendously about how he is worshipped. On one hand, we have how we should act, and then on another hand, how he is specifically worshipped. He refused to allow his people to worship him in the way that the surrounding nations worshipped their false gods. So if you're wondering why some things that are natural, like birth, childbirth, would make someone unclean, again, it's not because it's sinful, but it's because it's somewhat related to other nations and how they worshipped they're false gods. So other nations around the Israelites would worship their gods through fertility cults, cult prostitution, and child sacrifice. So conversely, for God's people, anything that involves sexuality, birth, or human death would make you unclean. Sexuality in its right confines is a good thing. Childbirth is a good thing. Human death is a natural thing. <laughs> but when you look at what these things are, uh, you know, against, we have fertility cults against sexuality. We have cult prostitution against birth. We have child sacrifice against human death. These type of things that were used by other gods, we wanted to stay as far away from those things as possible in order to be distinct. I think the key here is that the people began to grasp that God's concern for purity was fundamental to entering and remaining within a relationship with him. 
in our culture, we use the idea of purity. The word purity comes with connotations of pornography and staying pure before marriage, right? Those are the two things that kind of fit with that, right? We need to, men, you need to be pure and abstain from pornography. Uh, teenagers, you need to abstain from sex before marriage and remain pure, right? Purity is a much more holistic thing than what we have pigeonholed it into. We're talking about a purity of the soul. We're talking about a purity not just of the flesh or of the temple or of the eyes, but of the whole person. And as uh, I would love to spend some more time in like chapter 13 and 14 as we start talking about some of like the, the lepers and stuff. There are sermons abounding within that. Well, a fantastic one by Charles Spurgeon talking about the lepers. The lepers would be put outside the camp because they're unclean and a priest would go and check on them. And if a leper was found to just have like an arm covered with a disease, he was declared unclean. If he was found to be with half of his body covered, he would be declared unclean. If he was found with all of his body except his head covered in leprosy, he would be declared unclean. But if a priest went to a leper and his whole body from head to toe was covered in white, he would be declared clean, even though he was entirely leprous. Why? Because it's not just about health. A lot of these things are good for the Israelites because of health concerns. God was protecting his people. But his concern is whether or not someone is whole or unwhole. And when you look at someone who is completely consumed, he's still yet whole. There's a lot that we could talk about in there, but we need to understand that this purity or this wholeness is what God's concerned about. And so his people begin to grasp that. And so these laws that we receive in Leviticus are not just things that are do's and do nots. But they taught that every phase of life should be lived in a way that is pleasing to God. So cleanness and ritual purity is some language that we have to get over if we're going to understand Leviticus. And I hope you have a better understanding of that now. Because if you take this language that you've just learned in Leviticus, and you take that forward to Jesus as he touches lepers, it should have a whole different meaning to you. Sorry. should have a whole different meaning to you as Jesus, someone who is maybe not at least to the Israelites considered holy, but he was nonetheless a teacher, going to and touching of his own volition someone who is unclean. That should change the way that you approach these things. So how can we be distinct? First, we should be clean and ritually pure. What all of that points to is not just being clean, but it's, it's who is God? Where's the middle of that circle? Holiness. Number two is holiness. How can we be distinct? We should be holy. So here God reinforces the teaching that he gave in Exodus by drawing out the ramifications of this earlier teaching. So while they were at Sinai, of course, this is still while they're at the base of the mountain, in Exodus, in the narrative, we see that God gives teaching to his people. And he reinforces that now in Leviticus as he continues to talk to Moses and draws out the ramifications of that earlier teaching. We would call that here renovation implications. Right? So this is the teaching. Here are some implications of that. So the first thing, when we're dealing with holiness, we must understand that there must be no false worship and idolatry, child sacrifice, sorcery, and in chapter 18, many sexual sins are forbidden. We see that earlier when we're talking about cleanness and uncleanness and how we should worship the holy God versus how the nations around them worship false gods. 
He calls the Israelites to exercise a transparent concern for honest weights. So in trade, you want to make sure that your balances are right and the weights are correct. The poor, the blind, the deaf, the elderly, fairness in law, especially towards foreigners among them. Something I thought was interesting, uh, chapter 19, verse 14, do not curse the deaf. <laughs> I won't know. <laughs> A lot of people I've found, and I, and I do hear, I, for those of you that don't know me, I'm about 50% deaf. Um, I hear people talking about me while they're off to the side, and I just chuckle because I can actually hear them. But there are other times people talk about me, even near me, and I don't know. But what's really cool about this is it's, it's a declaration from God. It's not, do not curse the deaf, because it's not going to matter to me. If you curse about me behind my back, or even 10 feet in front of me, or right here, and you whisper, um, I'm not going to know. But God knows. And he doesn't want his people cursing the deaf. It says after that, do not put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. It means when someone blind is walking by, you don't kick a chair in front of them. They won't know. They don't see what you do. What if you miss? And it doesn't stumble them, but you tried to. God knows, and he doesn't want his people disrespecting those people. It's interesting then, because in verse 15, he says, do not show partiality to the poor. A lot of times when we're talking, I mean, think of Aladdin, right? Aladdin needed that bread. So he needed to steal it, right? I'm sorry that you're poor, but that doesn't justify breaking the law. Why? Because the law is the law of God. And it's easy for us to want to show partiality to the people that are, you know, not as well off as us. It seems to become, you know, okay, right? God says, do not show partiality to the poor. But he then says, don't show partiality to the rich. Don't let them buy you off. Don't say, well, we need their money, so we'll let them do what they want. James echoes both of those in the New Testament. Verse 32 of chapter 19 says, Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God. I am the Lord. And then in verse 18 of chapter 19, <coughs> we find Jesus' favorite verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' favorite verse is found in Leviticus. No one likes Leviticus. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting because Jesus and Paul use this verse to summarize the entire law. They use love your neighbor as yourself to summarize the entirety of the Pentateuch. Jesus uses it, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul uses it in two different places. Galatians 5.14 and Romans 13.9. Romans 13, 8-10 says... Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so holiness is, is a, a greater ramification, a greater implication of the idea of clean to holy. Clean things that are being sanctified or set apart for holy use are in their entirety thought of. So when I say that God is concerned about everything, there's nothing that God is not concerned about that means everything. Don't curse the deaf. A whispering thing to, uh, that, that no one's going to hear. It's just between you and you. Don't do those things. Show respect to the aged. Stand in their presence. 
All of these things are wrapped up in what it means to begin being holy. Now, when we're talking about holiness, obviously we have to reach back to last week as we talk about sin. And we talked about last week in dealing with sin, that we can commit sin intentionally, of course. We have wrong motives, we have wrong desires, and we act on those things that we know are against God's commands. And a lot of people would say that only those things that we do intentionally are sin. But chapter 4 and 5 of Leviticus illustrate very clearly for us that even unintentional sins are sin. Things that you do unintentionally that are against the laws of God are still sin. So last week we used unintentional sins to kind of illustrate the extent of sin, the fact that even when you don't think you're sinning, you might be sinning. (laughs) This week we're going to talk about more the nature of sin using unintentional sin. So unintentional sin is significant because it shows us that sin is not fundamentally subjective. So when I said just a, a minute ago that a lot of people would say that only the sins that you commit intentionally are really sin. Well, the fact that there is such a category as unintentional sin means even things that you don't do on purpose that are either an omission or a commission of the law are still wrong. Sin is not subjective. It's not something that you do against your own conscience, against your own nature, or what you even perceive to be right. We can't, Christians can't say, I don't think that that was sin. Now you can, the only time you can say that is in evaluating maybe your motives. All right, so you, you said something to someone, and then you search your heart, and you say, I don't think that I did that sinfully. I think that I, I shared their sin with them uh, out of concern for them, and that I was pure in that. But if someone comes to us and, and says, hey, I saw you sleeping with your neighbor, um, you can't, I don't think that was sin. Uh, we don't get to do that. Uh, you're caught in an outright lie. I don't think that was sin. We, we never, ever get to say that because it's not subjective Sin is fundamentally objective. It is something that you do against God's laws. It is something that we do against God's laws. God's laws do not change. We can't use the idea, I, didn't, I don't think that was sin. Because it's God's laws. He says it's sin, so it is. A lot of times with sin, we try to find some kind of like moral neutral ground that I talked about earlier. We can't. There are categories. Clean, unclean, holy, common. Sin, not sin. I was uh, looking over my notes again this morning as my parents left for church. And <laughs> my parents said, do good today. I hope I hope everything goes well in your message. And I was like, thanks. I'll try. I'm like, I'm going to not try. And my dad goes, you know better. <laughs> Do or do not, there is no try. Thank you, Yoda. Um, <laughs> things are or are not. You can't try, right? Sin or not sin. So the fact that there is unintentional sin and that it is objective has, again, huge implications for us. Number one, realizing that we can sin in ignorance provides great motivation to get knowledge. If it is true that God is holy... And that we will one day give an account to this all-holy, all-knowing God, then we need to know how we have offended him. We cannot lazily rely on casual inspection of our own heart's motives. Instead, we must search God's word and know his will. Getting knowledge of God's word and his will is incredibly vital if we want to avoid unintentional sin. 
if one day you will stand before, and you will, a all-holy and all-knowing God, we need to know how we have offended him. So, today's book tour. Um, you guys know the library's back there. I want to point out a few books for you. Um, in dealing with sin, as we have been, um, I rec- this is one of two books that I recommend for like every Christian ever. Mortification of Sin. We talked about this in Home Gathering a couple weeks or a month ago. Um, this is available back there. I have two copies. It's ten bucks. Um, yes, you can get these on Amazon cheaper. I raised the price by about a dollar here so that we can build the store and so that I can restore my youth budget. Um, <laughs> this is fantastic. This is by John Owen, a Puritan. It talks about how to mortify or put to death sin in your life. Check that out. A second book that I would recommend for everyone is a new book that just came out not long ago. It's my currently reading, but I've not changed my paper yet. Um, Proof. This is by Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones. Timothy Paul Jones is like the family ministry guru. Um, He knows everything that there is to know about family ministry. Daniel Montgomery is a pastor and a leader of the Sojourn Network. Um, A lot of our worship music by Sojourn comes out of their church. Um, This book is fantastic. If you want to know about grace, if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, if you want to get a lot of doctrine as you're reading this, check this book out. It is awesome. Twelve bucks. Last piece. If you want to gain knowledge, if you want to understand what God's Word says, the MacArthur Bible Commentary. All right? Um, If you don't have a lot of money to invest in commentaries as we go, and of course normally we cover like one book over like 16 weeks, right? So you can kind of divvy that money up. If you want something for every book on the Bible in one volume, this is where you should go. Um, I've got it listed for 30 bucks. Its list price is $40. Um, I have this on Kindle. I got it for 5 bucks, um, So you can be looking for that. But this has something on pretty much every single verse in the Bible. It's a small one because he has a volume for every book as well. Okay, um, But check this out. I've only got one that's back there today, so, you know, Fight amongst yourselves in unity. Um, I, this is fantastic. This will be a huge help to your family as you have questions about Scripture, as you're reading Leviticus, and you're like, why in the world did he say that? Check here. It'll at least give you something or at least help you find a better word to Google. Um, so with that, let's keep going. Um, the second implication for unintentional sin is this. We should feel the urgency of sharing the news of the gospel with other people. The news is vital. The news is good. If you understand that unintentional sin makes you equally guilty before a holy God and is equally deserving of death as someone who chooses to murder someone, then there is a great and urgent need to tell people about the good news of the gospel because the news of the gospel is the only way that sinners can be reconciled against a holy God. So application for this when we're dealing with holiness and unintentional sin how are you gaining knowledge? How are you better knowing God's word? Is Sunday your only time to do this? Because that's not sufficient. It's not. And how are you telling people about the good news of Christ? And something that I've found is frustrating, but also is leaning and pushing me into urgency even now is uh, I've been you know, going to Starbucks and Jimmy John's. Those are my two uh, places that I go. Um, I work out of Starbucks about two days a week for about six hours, probably more now since my office is in shambles. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's a turnover there. 
you don't have six months to build a relationship with people because they might go somewhere else. They might only work one day a week or a different day than you're even able to be there. Should you still develop a relationship? Yes, urgently. You have like a month, maybe. People leave, and, and your chance is gone. Get some contact information. Develop a relationship with them. At least so you can text. Become Facebook friends, because that's not creepy. I mean, do whatever. Do whatever it takes to be urgent and sharing the good news of the gospel. So that is reinforcing the teaching of holiness, and the second application of holiness is this. We must live distinctly holy lives, not just distinct. We don't just need to look different. There are plenty of people in our culture who are good at looking different. We need to look different in a right way. We need to be distinctly holy. I think what the key here in understanding holiness is not that, is again, it's that, that subjective sin. It's not what I think is right or even what I think is wrong. We need to understand that God is the judge. God is the one who says what is right and what is wrong. God is the one who sees everything that happens. That's why he says, don't curse the deaf. Don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. He sees everything. Because there may not always be witnesses to your sin, but God will always know the truth. And what's interesting is in Leviticus, he often promises to punish the guilty people himself. He doesn't, he doesn't give it to Moses and say, Moses, this person did something. Can you take care of that? He says, no, I know that this happened. I know that this sin occurred, and I will punish them myself. So we see such laws in the holiness code of things like no one should curse their parents. You can curse your parents and get away with that. You can curse your parents as a kid and get away with that. But God sees. We should not commit adultery, or maybe a more modern version of adultery would be pornography. We must not look at pornography or incest. These things may not have witnesses other than the person that you're engaging in with, but God will hold you accountable. We should not engage in perversions against the created order, homosexuality, bestiality. We should not engage in false worship, mediums or cult prostitution don't dabble in things that even are on the fringe of these things we should never blaspheme the lord we should not murder these things all fit into the holiness laws of leviticus so we should not be marked by those things and instead we should be marked by exclusive worship of him by respect for others by faithfulness and purity and relationships a lot of these things that I, I mentioned earlier, cursing parents, adultery, uh, perversions against created order and homosexuality, bestiality, murder, blaspheming, these things are not just things that make you unclean. They're not just sin. They're things that result in death. God, through capital punishment, is teaching his people that the quality of their lives matters a lot more than the duration. You ever think about that? In our American culture, a successful life is a long life, right? Scripture even will allude to this, right? If you obey your parents and honor them, you'll have a longer life, right? But what if, what if you only lived 20 years, but it was pure and holy? That matters a lot more to God than the length of your life. He's teaching them that it's more important to be holy than old. Chapter 26, and dealing with holiness, starts talking about obedience. And chapter 26 is something that we need to hang on to. For those of you that were with us in Gospel and Kingdom, as we looked at 
the idea of kingdom running through the entire Bible, of God's people and God's place under God's rule, there's a last piece to that. If you're God's people and you're in his place and you're under his rule, then you'll have blessing. If you're not under God's rule, you'll have curse. And that was a, a small thing that we touched on multiple times through that, but we didn't spend a ton of time on. To not be holy, to not be under God's rule, to not be doing what he says, to not live in what number three then is, obedience. To not live in obedience will bring curse upon us. Chapter 26 gives about 13, I think, verses talking about blessing and obedience. And then it gives about three times as much in cursing for disobedience. This is not the first time that we've seen this. This is covenantal language. In fact, it's, this chapter is almost word for word repeated at the end of Deuteronomy. But Moses is giving his final address to the Israelites before he dies. And he's sending them off into the promised land. He uses this language from Leviticus chapter 26. Obedience is required. If we're going to be distinct, then we have to be clean. If we're going to be clean, then we have to be holy. If we're going to be holy, it can only come through obedience. Now, a good question to ask, I hope that you already have, is why should God's people obey him? Why is God worthy of obedience? Why do we need to be distinct? Where does obedience lead us? What role does it play in making a people for himself? Well, obedience, I think, is six good reasons for obedience and obeying God. The first one. God's people should obey him because they want to prosper. And for some of you, that might shock you a little bit. Prosperity gospel, right? No. God does promise prosperity to the obedient. Just like in Ephesians 6, 1, right? It's the first, you should obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Right? So that things will go well for you. This is the first commandment with a promise prosperity, good life are things that go hand in hand with understanding authority and obeying it. It may not necessarily equal monetary wealth, but in general, you'll have a good life, right? So we would consider kids an aspect of prosperity, influence and in jobs an aspect of prosperity, um, growing intellect an aspect of prosperity. All of these things are not monetary. Nonetheless, they are prosperous, right? And so we should obey him because we want to prosper. I mean, unless you want to live under Nietzsche and have a terrible life, then most people want to prosper in some form or another. I'm going to rattle these off real quick. If you want them afterwards, uh, come talk to me. You see this in chapter 18, 5, 25, 18 through 19, and 26, 3 through 12. Multiple times, and even in chapter 26, 3 through 12, we see this idea of prosperity to the obedient. It was covenantal language. The second reason is that he promises to be with them. God's people should obey him because he promises to be with them. Remember Moses saying that if you do not go with us, I would prefer that you kill me. But there's no reason for us to go on if you will not be with us. And God relents of his anger and he says, yes, I will go with you. The primary thing that makes God's people what they are as his people is his presence. Without God, you're not God's people, you're people. And so the fundamental difference between the Israelites and the other surrounding nations is the fact that God is with them. 
We see this in chapter 9, verse 4, verses 23 through 24 as well. Chapter 26, again, as we're looking at our um, covenantal language of the curses and the blessings, we see that in 26, 11 through 12. A third reason that God's people should obey him is because they fear him. Because they fear him. Our culture doesn't want a God that they have to fear. Our culture wants a God that serves them. And that's not a God that is fearable. Repeatedly in Exodus we see, don't do action X, but instead, fear God. Don't do this. Instead, fear God. What does that mean? Don't do this, it will kill you. We see that in chapter 19, verse 14. Chapter 25, verse 17, 36, and 43. Where does fear come into this? What do we do with that as New Testament believers? Church, you see somebody in sin or getting ready to commit sin, say, don't do this, fear God. Don't do that thing, it will destroy you. It's not, I'm going to kill you. It's not even necessarily that God's going to kill you. It's that you're going to kill yourself. You're going to destroy your life. The fourth reason. God's people should obey him because of his special relationship with them. (coughs) Leviticus chapter 25 verse 55 says, The Israelites belong to me as servants. The Israelites belong to God in the Old Testament, even as Christ possesses the church in the New Testament. Acts chapter 9, verse 4. The church in the New Testament belongs to Christ, right? We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, right? Christ owns believers in the church. That didn't just happen. That's reflective of the Old Testament as God claimed for himself the Israelites. This is and it's not a, a necessarily like an oppressive servitude. When we're talking about he is, they belong to me as servants. It's not a, ha-ha, I'm going to whip them, right? That was Egypt, and God rescued them from that. The servanthood that we see in a relationship with God is this bondservant. This, as we used to, New Testament language, here we go. We used to be slaves to sin. We are now slaves to righteousness. That's a good thing to be a slave to, Right? I mean, this is a good master to have. Nonetheless, we belong to that master, and we do his will, but it is good for us, right? Doulos, bondservant, slave. We're slaves to righteousness because the language that he uses in describing us as servants is not an oppressive nature, right? It's a committed covenant love. This covenant love that God started and maintains all on his own. He puts Abraham to sleep, and he walks through the path of the covenant by himself. And God initiates this thing and says, I will make a great nation out of you. You will be blessed and all nations will be blessed because of you. He does that on his own. We break the terms of the covenant and God still maintains it. He could get out and he could say, whatever, I tried, peace. But he maintains it all on his own. And so this language of claiming us as servants is a committed, a covenant love. It's gentle, it's kind. We'll see this in chapter 24, verse 8. Again, in chapter 26, it's all the way through there as we're talking about blessings, blessings and cursing. And 26, verse 9, verse 15, verse 25, verse 42, 
And finally, in 44 and 45, we see this committed covenant love. He will love his people as his own. Fifth reason we should obey God. We should obey him because they or we are called to reflect his character. We're called to reflect his character. One thing in studying the Bible, whether you use it with a commentary or just on your own, is to look for repetition. You're going to see a lot more repetition in the Old Testament than you will in the New Testament. So pay attention in the New Testament if you see something even twice. Now, seeing something multiple times in Scripture does not mean that it's more important than anything else in Scripture. It certainly doesn't supersede another verse. But it does offer emphasis. It's something that's valuable. It's something that we should pay attention to. Four times in chapter 19 alone, we see the words, Because I am the Lord. We reflect his character. As we talked about in sin, the morality of the Bible is objectively based. You do these things because I am the Lord. Don't do this because I am the Lord. The morality of the Bible is not just objectively based. It's founded on God's character. Don't do that because I don't look like that. I'm claiming you as my people, and when you do that, you say something false about me. Don't do that because I am the Lord. Does that make sense? I think the summation for it is in uh, chapter 19, verse 2. If we want to talk about how we are to reflect his character, and see if this doesn't get echoed in the New Testament. Chapter 19, verse 2. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Why is not my first question there. How is my first question there. How in the world are we supposed to be holy? Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am claiming you as my people. You need to look like me. Be holy because I am holy. Again, I'm going to rattle these off. Chapter 11, 44 through 45. Chapter 19, verse 2. Chapter 27 through 8. Verse 26 as well. Chapter 21, verse 8 and verse 15. And chapter 22, 31 through 32. The final reason, start bringing this home, that God's people should obey him is because they are a witness to the nations. It's not just that we reflect his character to himself, but we reflect his character to the nations. Let's read together Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22 through 26. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn there. Leviticus chapter 20. Verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. Verse 26. 
You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, I'm holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So, question I have to answer, don't want to, it's a pain, and there's so much more I could say. Why do we no longer have to obey just the laws of Leviticus as they're listed out? Certainly you have seen in conversations, probably on Facebook, and dealing with homosexuality, they say, well, in the same context, it says that you can't wear a shirt that's made of two different fibers, right? You heard that? Can't eat shellfish anymore, right, if we're following all those laws. How do these things play together? Um, those are sermons within themselves right there. But we need to understand this, and looking at the language of Leviticus is pointing us to principles, right? Clean and unclean, so good and wrong actions, sin and not sin, holiness and obedience. And these are the main things that we're seeing. And if we want to properly understand Leviticus, we need to understand that most of these things do carry forward. It's not simply a matter of we should take something that has died out of the camp and burn it. That's not where we're at anymore. We talked last week, again, you can listen back to that, about how the new covenant does away with the old covenant. In fact, it repeals it and then makes it better. We understand that there are different laws in Leviticus. There are things that are moral and immoral, and there are things that are just ritual. Morality has not changed. The laws in Leviticus that concern holiness and the laws in Leviticus that concern morality have not changed. They are carried through into the New Testament, and most of them are even repeated in another form. The laws of ritual purity, the laws of uh, covenant meals and Passover and things like and the feasts, those things have been repealed with the Old Covenant. So that's, that's my short answer to that. I obviously have a much longer one. But understand that these principles that come with Leviticus of being clean and unclean and holy and being set apart being distinct in what we do. Being holy because he is holy and being obedient because he deserves obedience. All of those carry through with us. So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, I want to speak to you real quickly. I want you to think about the Christians that you know, the people in your life that would claim the title Christian. I would hope that you would find generally, at least, this elusive and surprising quality that we've been talking about today. This idea of holiness. I hope you can see some holiness in the people that would claim to be Christians in your life. And if you do, in fact, see that, I would hope and expect that your Christian friend's holiness would both comfort you and unsettle you. I hope that if you see holiness in a Christian and you don't claim that name for yourself, that there would be some comfort in seeing that this person really is who they say they are. They're distinct. They are set apart. But also that it would unsettle you, that you would say... I don't have that. Why are they doing that? What does this mean for me? Christian, if you're here today and you would claim that for yourself, you must understand the importance of holiness among God's people. If you don't, turn loose of the name Christian. Stop calling yourself one. If you don't value holiness, turn loose of the name. Reaching back to last week, if people bring sin to your attention and you can't deal with it, turn loose of the name Christian because you are still in your sins. Holiness requires sacrifice. 
because we are first and foremost sinners. We don't start from holiness and then work out. We start from sin and work to holiness. If someone brings sin into your, uh, into your remembrance of things that you have committed, put your hand on the head of that animal, identify with it, and say, as this happens to it, it should happen to me, and kill that animal. Holiness is a big deal. Do not bring added judgment on your head for confusing other people about what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is where church discipline comes into play. This is why we have to excommunicate people. It's not that they're sinful, it's that they're unrepentant. We're all sinful. The key is that Christians should be repentant. Repentance is something that leads to holiness. Who can approach the hill of the Lord? Him who has clean hands and a pure heart. You only get clean hands and a pure heart from confessing and repenting of sin. So church discipline becomes necessary when someone is in unrepentant sin, and they still claim to be a Christian. Those things don't fit together, and the church's job is to declare that that person is lying. And so just to touch on some of our renovators this week, is some final application to wrap this up. We've considered the fact that God involves himself in every aspect of our lives. He is indifferent about nothing. And that means being a Christian affects everything in your life. Are there any areas of your life where you exclude God? Whether it be sin, things that you're not willing to repent of, or things that you are not willing to relinquish control over. Because all of it belongs to him, and all sin is worthy of death. And if God cares tremendously about how he is worshipped, what steps do you take to ensure that you approach him and worship rightly? What steps did you take this week as you prepared for Sunday? What steps did you take this morning to prepare for our worship time? What steps do you take at home to prepare for praying? What steps at home do you take before you enter into God's presence? Because the difference between here is that they prepared themselves before they went to the tabernacle to meet with God. In the New Testament, we have to prepare ourselves always because we are constantly in the presence of God if you are a believer. You are the tabernacle. You're the temple. And if you are a converted believer today, the Holy Spirit resides in you. How do you take care to approach him and worship rightly? And so where is the gospel found in all this? Well, as last week we saw that he was the perfect sacrifice. Today we see that he was the perfect spotless lamb. He is holy. Christ is holy. He is perfectly holy. And he has become our holiness if we belong to him. As Paul later reflects to the Corinthian Christians, he says this in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 30. This is just huge. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. What is the wisdom from God? He is our righteousness, he is our holiness, and he is our redemption. So just as we saw last week, when you commit sin and you bring that sacrifice to the priest, and he kills it and it makes atonement for your sins, we have the perfect high priest. We have the perfect sacrifice. He lived a holy, perfect life. He earned all the righteousness for us. He died substitutionally on the cross for us, just as the calf would on the altar. He rose from the grave three days later to defeat sin and death once and for all. And now he stands at the right hand of God to make atonement, to, make, uh, to be our propitiator, to be our advocate, to be our mediator. He is the perfect 
sacrifice. He's the perfect king. He's the perfect priest. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. If we're not clinging to that every day, then we, again, are not understanding sin. We're not understanding who we are. We're not understanding what it means to live in community in the church. We're not understanding all that's wrapped up in what it means to be the people of God because God's people are to be distinct. With that, let's pray. As we contemplate what it means to have sacrifices, atonement, and blood, we'll sing together as we talk about the fountain filled with blood for us. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for what you've done. God, we understand that the only reason we can approach the throne is because of what you have done. What you have done through your Son, Father, is you've created a way for us to approach you. And Father, that we no longer have to fear condemnation, for we who are yours have been declared righteous. And Father, we stand under the shroud of your Son, Father, as his blood covers us. And when sin has occurred, blood is required and father you shed yours for us father we love you and we thank you for that that allow our hearts to be filled with gratitude now as we (coughs) as we seek to worship you father in a way that would be right and pleasing before you Father, as we humble ourselves and understand the great power and majesty that you are representing and displaying that father we would look to you in awe we would look to you in wonder Father, that we would fear you rightly because you alone are God. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in your precious son's name. Amen. <laughs>